last Sunday of the year, last, uh, last Sunday, and kind of project their vision for the, the church this next year. I preached on deacons instead because I wanted to give you guys a full month to examine and nominate people. So I'm doing my state of the church or my vision, my resolution for the church this morning. And uh, next week I'm going to preach on a topic relating to our equip conference. The 20th, we're going to have the missionaries. The last Sunday in January, we're going to have the baby dedication. So it's going to be a little bit different month again. And we will pick up Acts, I promise, in February. I didn't want to do Acts today and then have three weeks off again after we've already had a month off. So I wanted to read to you what my New Year's resolution for Waypoint is. My, my desire as a pastor is to labor and to lead Waypoint into being a spiritually minded, theologically rich voice of truth. Also, I want to be spirit-filled and gracious in the midst of our community. Because that is, as a church, as the body of Christ, being spirit-filled, offering grace and truth to the people we labor amongst, is our unique offering and privilege. That's why we exist as a church, in any location, in any place. And yet I recognize a common problem, as in other churches, it's here. That there's often a disconnect between theology and how the pursuit of theological richness seems to have no bearing on life. So my resolution is this. I want to labor to show you the connection of theology to life or living. So as to grow in theological depth, spiritual mindedness, and fruitful ministry in our culture and for our Lord. So I, I worked on how to say that. And I intentionally said it that way. I, I want to labor this year on your behalf to show you the connection of theology to how you live so that you can grow in theological depth, spiritual mindedness, and fruitful ministry in our culture. And yet, as I said, I recognize that there is a great disconnect in today's church. Many in the church today actually ask this question. What difference does theology actually make in our life? The idea is this, that the church needs to be relevant to the culture, and we think of theology as the most abstract and irrelevant of pursuits. I recognize that. If I were to ask you, in fact, what role does theology play in your daily life? What would you say? I don't want you to answer out loud, but I want you to think about that. If I were to ask you, what role does theology play in your daily life? What would you say? Would you say it plays a significant role? Would you say a moderate role or no role at all? Maybe somewhere in between. See, what has happened in our culture is that most people who attend church have come to think that the study of theology is simply an academic and scholarly pursuit. How many of you think of theology that way? You can answer this. If I say theology, is it kind of intimidating to you? Yeah. That's common. We think of it as, as reserved for the top 1% of Christian thinkers who are locked away in their seminary towers, and they're tasked with passing that, that brilliance on to the pastors, and we somehow are supposed to remember all of it and pass it on to you. That's usually how we kind of conceive of theology, at least as a discipline. P. 
People in the church today are very well content, in my opinion, with that dynamic as well. Because theology is difficult at times. It requires discipline. It requires sacrifice. It requires strenuous thinking at times. And our culture just is not conducive to that. And so we're quite comfortable where we're at. And in my opinion, it's unfortunate to say the least. I just got done reading a book from uh, looking at church history from 300 to 600 A.D., Unbelievable depth and pursuit of theology amongst scholars as well as the church. They were passionate about it. But I want to say this, the problem is not all on the lay people. Pastors, me, love reading theological stuff and we fail to make the connection for you. I, I was at a pastor's conference in October, as you guys know, as both a pastor attendee as well as a vendor with our ministry. And I thought as I was there that this is a perfect illustration. If you were to attend one of these pastor's conference conferences with me, you'd, you'd see the most pitiful sight you'd ever see. When those book vendor and the book hall opens up, we pastors become semi-catatonic, you know, and, and comatose. And we start salivating at the mouth and we wander around like zombies from table to table looking for the next theological work. It's pitiful. And I love it. We're like Pavlov's dog, you know, when they say, hey, the book room is open, you know. So there's a great disconnect that goes both ways from, from laity to theology and pastors have failed to make it known to the people. And so... I have a question. How do we become spiritually minded and fruitful? What's the answer in today's world? Well, for you, the answer is we've got to learn how to think theologically. We've got to change our attitude and heart toward the pursuit. For me, I've got to labor hard to make this connection when I preach, when I counsel, whenever I do anything. As you know, when I finish Acts, I'm going to move into a series on discipleship. And I've been reading lots of literature on it. One of the books I've been reading, as a matter of fact, I got at that pastor's conference, is called Theology as Discipleship, and it's wonderful. The author, Keith Johnson, said this very simply, we practice theology whenever we think or speak about God. So when I asked you, what role does theology play in your life? The only answer is every role, whether you know it or not. You live every day making theological decisions, whether you recognize it or not. How you live and what you do reflects the theology you believe. When we pray, when we read Scripture, when we worship, when we think about God, even when we make everyday decisions, you're doing and practicing theology. The problem is we don't recognize the above activities as theological, but they are. Here's what Paul said, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You know that verse. That's a theological imperative. Do you know that? But what does Paul tie to it? Eating and drinking. So eating and drinking fulfills a theological imperative in your life. The question is, do you give glory to God when you're doing it or not? Do you recognize His goodness and worthiness to receive glory 
even in such mundane things as we consider eating and drinking to be. So in a sense, the question is not whether you are a theologian or not. Biblically, we're all practicing theologians. That's the truth. Every decision and action speaks to our theology. The real question then is, are we good theologians or not? My resolution then is to help you affirm that answer that you are. I believe that every single person lives their daily life with some sort of functioning theology. We operate either implicitly or explicitly or by default on assumptions about God. For instance, when you go to work and you treat people in a certain way, you're acting on theological assumptions. If your theology states that there is no God and I can do and be whoever I want to be and do whatever I do, then why do you treat people with kindness as opposed to hatred? Those are theological issues involved. You see the connection immediately. You do it implicitly or, or by default. I'm going to give you a couple quick examples from the Sermon on the Mount, and then I'm going to look at one issue in particular that I want to see us at Waypoint grow in, and I'm going to labor for. Some examples, though, real quick to make this point clear. From the Sermon on the Mount, one sermon, it's considered the greatest sermon ever given, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And he was speaking to common people, fishermen, tradesmen, wives. And he's filled that sermon with theology. Problem is, they didn't recognize it as theological. They did say, hey, man, this guy doesn't teach like our religious leaders, the Pharisees. But Jesus infused that sermon with theology. Here's one example. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24 in the Sermon on the Mount, no one can serve two masters. You know that verse? That's a theological statement. It's a theological statement. In other words, if one is a master, then he deserves their subject's full affection and devotion. That's what a master is, right? Jesus goes on to expound on that statement. He says, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. So he expounds on what that means theologically. You can't be divided in your devotion to a master. They deserve your full affection. But then, he doesn't keep it in an abstract statement like that. He makes it concrete. He says very simply, you cannot serve God and money. Theological statement. In other words, when our devotion to money and the pursuit of it supersedes and takes over our devotion and affection to God, you're in a theological dilemma by how you're living. And Jesus is pointing it out. Ouch, right? Or take this statement in Matthew 7. Let me read it to you. You can turn there real quick. This isn't going to be our passage, but Matthew 7... Here's another good theological example of how theology works in practical terms. Verse 7 of Matthew 7, Jesus said, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, 
give good things to those who ask them. Let me break this down theologically, what we just learned about God. One, that God is generous. He gives. That's a theological statement. How much more will your Father, who's in heaven, give? So God is generous. Not only is He generous, He's good. He gives good things. And He compares it to us who are evil, being able to give good things. So God is generous. God is good. Third, God is faithful. How much more, Jesus says, will your Father give good things to those who ask? If you ask, guess what? You will get. He is faithful to give. God is generous. God is good. God is faithful. All theological truths. But what's the implication for our life? You need to ask. You need to seek. You need to knock. There's the application. So by not asking, not seeking, not knocking, you're showing your theology. You don't either believe God will give it or you don't think He's worthy of being asked. If you don't ask. Right? You're acting on theology. If your theology believes God is generous, God is good, and He'll give, you'll ask. That's the point, theologically. And it affects your daily life. That's good theology right there, isn't it? You have a good theological background of who God is, and it should affect every day's choices. So that's the connection between theology and life. It's not very hard to make. Read the Sermon on the Mount with that kind of framework, you'll see how rich it is theologically. And it was to common folk. That's why people love Jesus. So contrary to what many in the modern church think, I'm convinced the more theologically sound and deep we are as a church, the more relevant we will be to a lost culture. Because what the lost culture needs to know is the theological truths that they can ground their life upon. And so relevancy to a culture that's lost is not found in just being cool and and having a certain image. It's in holding up and pursuing rich teaching. That's what they need. And they need to see how it's going to affect their life, change their life. Here's what Paul said. Tell me if, if you think this isn't such rich theology. Paul said, to the, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, the Corinthian church, he says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Now listen to this. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere we go. Do you see that your place as a Christian in the world is to anywhere you go, spread the fragrance of the knowledge of Him? Pretty beautiful. Pretty rich. But when the church isn't pursuing theology, how can you do that? You can't. In fact, that's why the world looks at the church and sees it as irrelevant because they say, you don't offer anything that our government welfare programs don't. Theology is the crown jewel of the church. Paul said to Timothy, you are the pillar and support of the truth. This is what we offer people. If they don't want it, fine. But this is what we got. So we're going to look at one example in particular. Again, how do we become spiritually minded and fruitful? Think theologically. So the one point, how do you set your mind 
Or, sorry, what do you set your mind on? Things temporal or things eternal? It's a good question. We're going to consider several scriptures that highlight this problem for us. How does thinking theologically help us with thinking upon eternal things? Well, let me give you some examples just to ease into this, okay? You guys know this. This is the Parthenon. We've been going through Acts. This is where Paul preached in Athens. This was the great temple of Artemis, one of the wonders of the world. This is actually an exact replica, a real replica in Nashville, Tennessee, if you want to go see it. Beautiful, isn't it? Well, here's what the actual Parthenon looks like now. What happened? Here's the Roman Forum, what the Roman Forum used to look like. If you've been to Rome, you've walked through this. Incredible. Well, here's what the Roman Forum looks like today. Such beauty, gone. Here's the Roman Colosseum, what it used to look like. All those gods and, and heroes, gladiators worshipped. Here's what the Colosseum looks like today. Here's some more examples closer to home. Anybody know what kind of car that was? It was the Miner. It was the number one selling family car in the 1950s. First car ever to sell a million cars. Here's my perfect and best family car today. It's coming, by the way, Jill. Here's what our cell phones look like today. We all got one in our pocket. Well, here's what our cell phones will look like to the next generation. That was pretty cool in the 80s. And sadly, you can be voted the sexiest man alive and yet end up a Santa Claus fill-in. Sorry, ladies. What's common with all these pictures? Fashion, transportation, architecture, technology. They're all tending toward decay and waste. All of them are temporal, and none of them are what they used to be. Well, let's look at some passages that speak to this. It's easy to look in the culture and see it. What's the Scripture say? Well, Job 7.7 simply says this, Remember that my life is but breath. Can't say much clearer than that. Your life is but breath. Psalm 102, verse 3, My days pass away like smoke. Psalm 144.4, Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Psalm 39, 5 and 6, Behold, you've made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. And surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. What about the New Testament? 2 Corinthians 4.18 The things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. James 4 Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a midst that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And my wife's favorite passage, Colossians 3, 1 and 2, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above 
where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Which leads us into what I want to challenge us this year with. Setting your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. We've seen pictures of what things on earth are and what happens to them. We've become known as the selfie generation, and I think that is such a sad commentary on how we value life. It's a well-known and yet, it's a well-known truth, and yet all those illustrations highlight a truth that's accepted by the culture. Culturally, we say that uh, times change, right? Scientifically, they say the same thing, just a little more technical. The second law of thermodynamics, if you study science, states there's a natural tendency of any system to degenerate into a more disordered state. In other words, all things tend toward disorder or chaos, not toward order and structure. Just look at your life. Look at, come visit our household <laughs> with four kids. It tends toward disorder and not order. The second law of thermodynamics is often at work. So church, here's what I want you to be challenged on. How do you become spiritually minded? How do you set your mind on things above? Well, you need to think theologically. So we're going to consider for the rest of our time this morning, not very much time, the eternal things. Here's a survey of the word eternal in Scripture. That word eternal is used at least 47 times in the Scripture. Here's an example of things it's referenced for. God is said to be eternal in Deuteronomy. Damnation, judgment, is eternal. God's power is said to be eternal. His glory, His purposes in Ephesians. The Holy Spirit is said to be an eternal spirit. Fire of judgment in Jude 7. Redemption is eternal. Our inheritance is eternal. And most often, the word is used in connection with life eternal. So when our pursuits are things of this life, we're missing the boat big time. Most often, the word eternal is connected with life. I came that they might have life, right? Eternal life. So theologically, eternal means non-temporal. It affirms that God is above and beyond time. So we don't say that eternity is endless time. That's not correct. Because time itself was created. And this isn't simply a theological statement. Anybody heard of Albert Einstein? His theory of general relativity proved time and space had a beginning. Confirms our theological truth. So time is a created thing. So being eternal means it's beyond or outside of time. It's literally immeasurable. You can't measure it by time, sequential things. So God and all these things that we just considered there exist outside of time. Think about that. Think about the implications of eternal life. Life that will not be measured by time. The one enemy we have that everyone faces is time. Our clock is ticking. Well, eternal life brings the hope that life will one day never be measured by it. 
I like how the early church father, Clement of Alexandria, said it of eternal things. He said, God is without beginning and He produces both the beginning and the end. He Himself is without beginning, but He produces both the beginning and the end. There's a closely related word actually used more often than the word eternal is in Scripture, and it's the word everlasting. It's used at least 93 times in Scripture. Again, here's some of the things that is connected to God's covenant promises to people are everlasting. Israel's possession is everlasting. God's mercy is said to be everlasting. So is His strength, His salvation, His kindness, His name, even His very being is everlasting. His kingdom in Daniel 7 is an everlasting kingdom. Again, judgment is everlasting. His gospel in Revelation 14 is the everlasting gospel. And once again, guess what word is connected most often to everlasting? Life. Life. Everlasting. The word everlasting theologically means without interruption. It stresses the eternal state is permanent, unchangeable, uninterrupted. So eternal is being above or beyond time. Everlasting denotes the, the nature of that existence. It will be uninterrupted. Pretty cool when you put them together theologically. They're very closely related. Let's go look at a text and bring this down to earth. Like I said... I'm going to labor to show you the connection of some of these theological truths, eternal and everlasting truths, to the here and now. How does this affect us today? Psalm 9, if you want to turn there with me. We're going to look at verses 1-12 through 12 real quick. And then we're going to look at another verse after this. Just one verse. Psalm 90, verse 1 says this, Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now beyond being a beautiful verse, the beauty of it is the richness of its truth, theologically. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Uninterrupted. Verse 3, though, changes from looking at an everlasting God to a temporal man. Verse 3, you return man to dust. And you say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past. Or as a watch in the night. You sweep them, that is man, away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning the grass flourishes, and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and it withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. Again, there's the theological truth. All our days, they're measurable, and they pass away. They pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. 
They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the, fe- to the fear of you? Now stop there. Two simple truths denoted in that passage. God is everlasting. Man is not. You can sum it that way. So what's the application for us? Verse 12. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. There's the bridge of theology to application. You know what the eternal God and everlasting God that theological rich truth should teach you to do every day? Number them. Number your days. Why? So that we can gain a heart of wisdom. Here's what Moses, this is the, Moses is the author of this psalm. Here's what Moses said in Deuteronomy 32, verse 29. He said, I wish that my people were wise, that they would understand this, that they would discern their latter end. See, death has a way of being a wise counselor to people because it teaches us and reminds us, my days are numbered, they're passing, and I'm going to a place in a state that is not. By implication, I want to make the best use of every day that I have. There's how theology affects your daily life. Paul said in the New Testament this way, be circumspect, make the best use of your time because the days are evil. So every day, the Scriptures are telling me theologically to consider what God has in store for me. Make the best use of it. I won't make you turn to this passage. I wrote it because it's one verse. It's the same truth considered from a different angle. Here's what Habakkuk 1.12 says. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. <laughs> so there's a different implication, right? While on earth, our days are numbered. But because God is an everlasting God, you know what the eternal implications are for you? You won't die. Why? Because of that theological truth of the everlasting, eternal God who holds you. Here's how Jesus said in the New Testament. The same truth in Habakkuk, Jesus said in the Gospel of John chapter 11, verse 26. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, while it doesn't use the word eternal or everlasting, it captures the meaning. He shall never die. So your eternal existence is premised upon God being an eternal and everlasting God. The better you know God as an eternal, everlasting God, the more hope you will walk in today in these measured days. That's the application. Here's some more applications for you. Understanding that God is eternal and everlasting causes me to recognize my need being temporal myself. I didn't cause my existence and I can't continue my existence. I am dependent on the one who did. Therefore, it is the greatest advantage for a soul to do business with God because his life depends on it. Another application of God being eternal causes me to arrange how I live in light of eternity, not in light of today. In light of eternity. Let's turn to those passages, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 12, If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, 
silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. That day is referring to the day of the Lord, when He will judge our work as His children. And it's the gateway of our entering into eternity. That's the picture. As you enter into your existence, your work, your life, will be tested. And every day that you built, you either are building with hay, wood, straw, or with precious things that will last through the fire of testing. Do you see the theological truth and its implication for you right there? Paul goes on. Each one's work will be manifest, for the day will dis disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, yet only as through fire. It's not talking about the, the great white throne judgment that non-believers will face. It's talking about the Bema Seat judgment. The judgment seat of reward, where God will look at you as His child and say, what did you do with my gospel in the days I appointed you? And Paul makes two very clear applications from that theological truth. You will either receive a reward or you will suffer loss. You'll be saved. But guys, just stop and think about the weightiness of that application. This spiritual mindedness that I want to see happen in church, where we become theologically rich. Start with thinking about eternity, because by thinking about eternity, it's going to affect the decisions you make after we leave here. It's going to affect what you do with the allotted time. If you believe that. If you don't believe it, that's theology also. And you're going to live however you want to live. The truth stands. When you stand before the Lord, you might be one of those who suffer loss. You might be those who receive a reward. That's profound application for us. And it has the potential to profoundly transform the people of God. One of the greatest truths in reading that early church history that motivated the church to live holy and to spread the gospel. Those were the two driving factors in the spread of the church up through 600 AD. A zeal for missions and a, a life of holiness. Do you know why? There was, there's a dominant truth that was constant in all those pursuits. They believed the Lord could return any minute. They believed it. And so they ordered their life around that theological truth. It affected everything they did. They didn't waste away their time with frivolous things. They didn't go day after day after day without even a thought of God. Which is common for us. There's so many things in our culture in America that, that compete for your time. And we give in to it. And so little amount of our time is actually given to the Lord to think about Him, to serve Him, to worship Him. 
And the theological truth I'm expounding for you today is, hey, we're in the shadow of eternity right now. And we will enter eternity one day. And what's your life going to say of it? That's how we become spiritually minded, considering these theological truths in this application. Here's what Paul said at the end of his life. This is what I want to be able to say of mine. This is what I hope every Christian can say of their life. 2 Timothy 4, verse 7. Paul says this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, the same day he's referring to in Corinth, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul could come to the end of his life and turn back and look upon those days that were allotted him and say, I fought the good fight. I ran my race. I finished it. Now I, I turn around and I'm looking at the gates of eternity and said, I know what's laid up for me. <laughs> and I'm entering in to take it. Is that not what you want for your own life? That's, I hope that's what everyone wants. But we've got to be spiritually minded. Being spiritually minded will happen when we take seriously theological claims in the Scripture, such as this one. Third, this theological truth causes me to examine if I'm even a believer, which is the most important question. Paul would say to the Corinthian church after years of issues and persistence in sin, he finally would say to them, you need to test yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Because the clock is still ticking. Our days are less and less and less, moment after moment. And you need to know this vital issue. Are you in Christ or not? If that doesn't stir someone who's outside of Christ with a jolt of fear, that's sad. Am I truly in Christ? Because I have to do business with an eternal God, and I just saw theologically, not only is life eternal, but so is judgment. So is the fire of judgment, Jude 7. See, everything God is, is reflected in what He does. Just as God, by His being, is eternal, so His actions will be eternal as well. The gospel he gave is the eternal gospel. The crown of righteousness is an enduring crown. His acts of judgment is everlasting as well. Everything God does, it causes me to set my mind, lastly, on set my mind and hope on the things that are above. As Paul encouraged us in Colossians 3, listen, children, he said, set your mind on things above not on things below. Why? Because things below are transient. Things above are eternal. They're uninterrupted. They're unchanging. They're unmeasured by moments. And it's yours in Christ. That's your inheritance. <laughs> so whether I have that certain vehicle 
as a family car. I'll, I'll go back to it. So whether that's my lot or whether this is my lot doesn't really matter. I have a preference and it is definitely this one. I think that's pretty cool. I just don't think we'd all fit in it. It doesn't matter. And yet it, our, our culture pursues this. Their minds are set on things below. Where's your life today? Honestly, when we evaluate our life, are, are we more concerned about being voted this guy on the left? Because we're going to look like the guy next to him. Sorry, Jill. I hate to break it to you. My beard's almost as white as his already. So as we go into this new year, that's my challenge. I want to see us grow. And we've got lots of room for growth. I, I started this sermon out this week in a whole different vein. I wanted to do an appraisal of things that I see in the church, both good and bad. And as I studied it, just, it didn't go anywhere. And just some of these scriptures, as I read them in cross-references, just started really standing out, building this cohesive theme. And I wanted to focus on one thing. And it will continue throughout the year. I want to deliver to you rich theology. Why? Because your spiritual mindedness and your growth in Christ depends on it. And I want to labor to do my part as your shepherd. But at the same time, you have to do something with it as well. And I hope you don't stay the same. I hope next year at this time, there's been zero growth in your life. I hope that's not the case. One of the absolute fears that I have is, is with my children. I have 18 years of, of them in my house. I have 18 years to train them up. And then it's gone. And I'll be, be liable for what I did with them. I mean, that, that's a heavy truth. It's a heavy truth on me. I don't want to waste my days. I have a certain number of them. I want to be faithful. And I hope to do that through understanding God rightly and that motivating me in truth. So with that, I want to pray. I want to invite the, the team up. And we're going to sing one last song that is very intentional as far as its message. It's meant to be a meditative song, so it's, it's slow. And it's meant to guide our minds to what's to come. It's called soon. So go before the Lord and just seek Him and make some resolutions in your own heart as we prepare. Father God, I stand in awe at Your grace and Your faithfulness to us. When I truly evaluate who we are, we are, we are needful, pitiful creatures. And yet we boast such arrogant claims about ourselves of beauty, of endurance and strength. And yet we don't even know what's going to happen to us tomorrow. We can't count the hairs on our head. And yet you know everyone. You knew me in my mother's womb, the Scripture tells me. You uphold all things in the universe, the Scripture also says, by the word of your power. And as we just saw, you are said to be the eternal 
everlasting God, a God who is not measured by time, who is uninterrupted in His existence and His attributes. And yet in Your grace and mercy, which is said to be everlasting, You condescend to men that we might have an inheritance in Your Son. Father, that is such a strong, powerful truth that we just saw. And I pray You transform our minds to be spiritually thinking people that as we go from day to day on an earth that changes every day, we would have a perspective that is eternal, that would gauge, that would inform our every decision. Because then we, we approach that statement by Paul of whatever we do, whether it's eating or drinking or all things, do it to the glory of God because we truly are that dependent on You. And everything truly does reflect how good and how glorious You are. Fill us with that kind of awe and worship daily, not just now. And help us start as we sing this song. Lord, I pray You move in this this group here. Father, whether they just want to stay in their seat and contemplate these truths and listen to the Word, or whether they want to sing it out as loud as they can, Lord, Help us set our hope on what this song is saying. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.